podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, I'm Sai and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation. Here on the channel, we've got podcast interviews and content on various subjects, including mental health, football, serial killers, films, TV, conspiracy theories, writing, music, and much more. All our shows are available in video format at youtube.com slash acepodcastnation, as well as all the audio, all the usual podcasting platforms, Apple Pods, Google Pods, iHeartRadio, and alike. Uh, so today we're going to be talking uh, a bit about news media, more importantly, the mainstream media, as it were. Um, fans of or viewers of our, my show will know uh, from my conspiracy theory shows, I'm not a fan of uh, the mainstream media particularly, but uh, I'm excited to talk to today's guest. Uh, I came across her on an episode of James English's uh, Anything Goes podcast, which I highly recommend. And I, I was fascinated and quite captivated by her, her story and her words. Uh, so with that being said, I'm delighted to welcome former BBC and ITV journalist, uh, Anna Brees. Welcome, Anna. How are you? Good. Thank you for inviting me on. Good to, yeah. good to meet you in the virtual world on yeah. Zoom. I know, it's, and it's new to me as well. I've never used Zoom before, so I was a bit nervous before, and I was like, oh, is it going to work? Is it going to work? But uh, it all seems to be going well. So, yeah. I, um, yeah, I came across you on uh, James's podcast. Obviously, James has got a massive podcast. It's very popular, but I was really interested by, you know, a lot of the things you said and your story. Um, so what I wanted to do just before we sort of get into some stuff and I've got some questions which people sent in as well um, was just for people who are not familiar with you perhaps if you could tell us like a little bit about yourself and how you ended up where you are today really. Yeah of course um, it's interesting because a lot of people watch the James English podcast and um, I think since that was broadcast uh, maybe about a month ago uh, my life has changed quite a bit and I've uh, also been on Sean Atwood and in kind of by accident I found myself in this position of you know potentially becoming an influencer but you know I was always the person as a journalist interviewing other people and now people are interviewing me um, but the reason I think that I've connected and my message is connected with so many people is because I'm saying what they're thinking and um, they feel that the media that they've known and loved for so many years is letting them down and I come from that kind of background so I'm a, a BBC former BBC employee um, I was at ITV as well, and I was a television journalist and presenter. And um, I suppose I communicate a truth that people feel in their hearts that uh, they are not hearing maybe anywhere else. I'm using my mobile to kind of do the same kind of video uh, news, TV news content that I used to do in traditional media when I worked at the BBC and ITV. And it's quite simply all about communication. You know, we, we have to think that for the first time in history, this species of humankind we can all communicate with each other we have an ability to to film ourselves get our stories out there show and share evidence so if these stories of abuse or injustice uh, if there's whistleblowers out there that feel that those stories that they called they have tried to get out to the masses they haven't been able to do it we now have a duty to do that so what is the impact then of us all being able to communicate you know what is actually going to happen now we can do all we can do this for the first time ever and and a lot of people have become very very angry 
with organizations like the BBC and um, they don't feel that they can put their faith and trust in them anymore. And um, they're, they're lacking direction and they're lacking clarity and they're lacking truth. And uh, I suppose people are seeing me coming out and talking about these issues and, and feeling that, um, that I am reflecting kind of what they're thinking and saying and uh, it's such an incredibly interesting time now when it comes to politics and the media and where we're going and with the general election coming up and I've seen so many politicians now do this direct broadcasting where they're communicating to their audiences directly um, rather than going through those traditional um, the traditional route of speaking to local media organizations they don't necessarily really have to do that anymore and we've seen Boris Johnson turn down the opportunity to speak on Sky News before and the BBC and um, you know a lot of people say well that's not a good thing because they're, they're not open to scrutiny but you know my argument is that we are the journalists now we're going to scrutinize them and that's why I think you know the comments underneath these posts kind of reflect how we're feeling and thinking and we can ask the questions and we can provide other evidence so it's an interesting time in the media and I I think yeah with my background as being a BBC reporter it's kind of um, a lot of people can relate to the kind of things that I'm saying you know that transition into truth where you're starting to read and listen to things uh, that you know challenge your beliefs and and make you think well have we been lied to in the past you know there are some very serious issues you know whether that be um, the way John Sweeney behaves and the undercover footage that the Tommy Robinson team got of him as they tried to do a hit job piece on him for Panorama um, other panorama BBC panorama programs one that I've highlighted before called saving serious children a chap called Robert Stewart who was a journalist and now an investigative researcher looking at that particular program um, which there are many many questions around that program BBC panorama saving serious children as to whether the BBC actually filmed a fabricated event where um, people were pretending to be injured and there wasn't really the the incendiary bomb attack that we believe happened didn't actually happen. So you, know, you start watching this information and reading it, whether that be BBC Panorama or the way certain BBC or political reporters are behaving. And you think, well, you know, where can I put my trust? Um, where, how can I make political decisions and how can I live my life if I'm not getting accurate, truthful information? Yeah, it's, um, I, th I feel like, people's trust and their faith in whether it's the BBC or ITV or Sky, you know, newspapers, I feel like it's at an all time low. Um, and I think social media has changed the game because anyone, you know, most people have got a phone, like you say, anyone can jump on a phone and they can, they can live stream to Periscope or to YouTube or to Facebook and they can, they can film what's going on on the street or, you know, wherever they can, obviously they can talk into the camera and they can say what they think or what they've seen. Um, and then it suddenly when, what I find interesting is sometimes you'll have uh, like a news report going out, maybe like breaking news and the TV will be saying one thing, but then you might find that the people who are in and around that area uh, can be live streaming on their phone or they can be posting on Twitter and they're saying something slightly different. Um, and it's interesting that, the the media sometimes I think have their own spin on things um, and a couple of the questions actually which I've been sent in and a couple of my own questions are about that to you was that uh, you know who decides what 
the the narrative of what BBC or ITV or Sky or the newspapers who decides what you know who who decides how a story is told or what stories are told because that really interests me because I have my own opinion but I feel like it'd be quite interesting to hear you know you as someone who used to work for the BBC uh, your sort of opinion and your experience of that well exactly and how do you pick the news agenda how do you pick your headline story you know I was listening to the BBC radio um a year, a couple of years ago, and I write about this in my book, Making the News 2018, and they were leading on Wayne Rooney being arrested for drink driving. And then something that I thought was far more important about the Kenyan elections was kind of the last story. And, you know, and the thing is, if we're told these certain stories are more important, then it starts to impact how we see the world. You know, it's not just the media, it's not just the news. You know, if everyone's talking about Wayne Rooney, if it's the headline, if it's on all the front pages, then it's becomes a story that's more important to us you know the shaming of a celebrity or you know uh, on on some of the main bbc or itv they'll interview people from strictly can dancing or x factor then that yeah. becomes a conversation topic in our, our lives you know the media is very very important you know coronation street or emmerdale when the two women kissed you know that's that changes society that changes what we deem to be acceptable or not it's not just the small stories it's, you know, it's not just the news agenda of what the the newspapers or the television or these publications, and this is the thing, it's not newspapers or television anymore, they're everywhere, they're on all platforms, multimedia, um, but what they deem to be important and what they deem to be headline news then directly impacts our life and the conversations we have with friends and family about what is important because we've been told what's important. But what's happening now and what has happened in the last two years and what's really interesting is I was friendly with um, a, a very well-known entrepreneur in the area who wanted to be an influencer. He's a multi-multi-millionaire and I remember having a conversation with him and I was sending out tweets and he was trying to give me advice because he's a multi-millionaire. And I was like talking about MSM and I would do tweets and I'd put MSM and he said, no one knows what MSM is. Look how that's changed. You know, if you yeah. write a tweet now and put MSM, everyone knows what MSM means. Um, and because he was, he's very, very rich, he thought that he could kind of give me advice um, on how to become an influencer. And what I would say is he's tried to become an influencer. He's not. He's got a lot of money, but he's not an influencer because he's not understanding the public. He's not understanding yeah. where we're at. So it is so much, it's so... Yeah, you're right. How do we pick those main news stories? Who picks those main news stories? I think what's interesting is if a journalist has a story and it's blocked, if a journalist has a story and the evidence to go with that story and it's not reported, such as that, which is what happened with the Jimmy Savile case. You know, they interviewed victims. They had all of the evidence they needed to run the story, but they didn't. Um, it's it, it, that, you know, when we get into that territory, then that's that's where we get uh, more suspicious, I think, and more conspiratorial. But, uh, you know, you even look at that story and we're like, oh, hey-ho, they protected a paedophile for all those years. Um, but it's still wonderful, isn't it, the BBC? And I'm still so proud to work for the BBC. Well, really, in, on that alone, how can people who work for the BBC be proud of that, that organisation on just that story alone? Yeah, it's... <laughs> It's, it's, I find it really frustrating because to me, that story is so disturbing, so upsetting, but I feel like the BBC did quite a good job of 
I don't want to say sweeping it under the rug, but like personally, I felt like once that story broke and you had the, the program, on, I think it was on ITV, wasn't it? Um, and they, they kind of broke and everything, everyone knew exactly what had gone on. I felt like, well, there's going to be some, some big names fired for, you know, for covering it up or at least having knowledge of it. You know, when I say big names, I don't necessarily mean kind of well-known names. I mean, like, uh, you know, like top jobs, uh, people high up in the BBC. And they kind of didn't ever have this big sort of clear out of people who, you know, who, 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 who were aware, I don't think they who did, had knowledge. No. And I, that's, that's really problematic for me because I feel like there's quite, if you read into it and you look into it, there's quite a lot of uh, certainly circumstantial evidence, if you like, that a lot of people knew. You know, you've only have to look at the fact that Johnny Rotten uh, from the Sex Pistols did a, an interview uh, in 1978, basically, you know, saying what Savile was up to. Uh, and saying that he was banned, you know, he was but then banned from BBC Radio um, and Top of the Pops and things like this. So it's, I think it's fairly fair assumption to say that it was a pretty open secret that Jimmy Savile was doing certain things, whether everybody knew exactly what he was doing is obviously, you know, I, I guess we won't know. But Well, there may be, what we have to remember is there may be people in the BBC who wanted this exposed um, but they're, those at the top weren't going to allow it because of the reputational risk to the organisation. And those stories, I've seen so many other examples of very similar stories to Jimmy Savile. And they have um, certain individuals at the top of these media organisations may simply say, well, we can't. It's too much of a trust issue. It's simply too damaging to us as an organisation that we will not let this out. And difficult decisions have to be made by the people at the top of these organisations that you know, to lose completely, to lose the trust of the BBC, we can't do it. So Mirian Jones, um, who's based in Wales, he was at BBC, pretty sure it was at BBC Newsnight, it might have been BBC Panorama, but the articles, and I don't know if you can layer over my, my conversation now, because people yeah. can go and find these articles. He was uh, very senior in the BBC, and he said that those people who wanted to expose Jimmy Savile were considered traitors, and the people that kept quiet were the ones that kept on. So he's actually come out and said that about the Jimmy Savile affair. Uh, he doesn't work for the BBC anymore. And, uh, you know, he has spoken in, I think, two articles, the Press Gazette, and I think the other one's The Guardian. Um, but they're, you know, Google Miriam Jones and you'll, you'll find that information's out there. Um, they call it crisis comms, you know, reputational risk. How do you, dam how do you deal with it? So you apologise. I, as a media organisation, could make a mistake. I could end up interviewing someone and further evidence could come to light that shows or exposes the story as, as being inaccurate. Then you, you come forward and you say, sorry, it's, it happens. It happens to everyone. It's not something that you can avoid. But what you can avoid is continually ignoring the truth and having this evidence put to you time and time again and purposefully hold it back. Then you are exposed as liars and then yes there is a reputational risk and trust is lost so if the BBC uh, want to keep putting their heads in the sand closing their ears and their eyes to what's actually going on the conversations that people are having on Twitter and on Facebook and on YouTube about how they really feel about this organization um, they they can carry on closing their eyes and closing their ears 
but the public and the damage that's being caused is happening right now every day it's eroding um, something very serious needs to be done I think for the BBC to continue to exist in any format it would involve um, serious restructuring and, and getting rid of a lot of people at the top who I think are rotten I do for covering up protecting a paedophile you're rotten but is there a place for whistleblowers to go? I mean, there's whistleblowers in all sorts of industries, you know. Maybe lots of people in the BBC did try to get this story out and, uh, and were silenced. I guess at that stage, that's when they come out to the alternative new media and, and say, I tried to get this story out, but it was blocked. But you've got to remember, professional journalists have mortgages. They have nowhere else maybe to make the money to progress their career. So that might be why they're... They backed down. They think, well, I've done it. I've tried. The story wasn't one. And yeah. they backed down. So it's a, it's a story for me of communication. Um, we can all communicate now. Do we believe, you know? I don't know how many followers you've got, how many views you have. What's your influence? What's your reputation? Do people trust you? Do people trust me? If I communicate information or evidence, do they trust it? Um, a lot of information is already out there. You know, people ask me to cover their stories, but a lot of the time the evidence is already out there. There are some credible testimonials from victims of horrific child abuse on YouTube. They may have only got 5,000 views, but if you listen to them, do you believe? Have they provided other evidence? Have they sought um, maybe a right of reply to the organization they, in question that they may be accusing? So it's all about, for me, communication. We can all communicate now. Are we actually gonna believe the message? that people are delivering. You know, what makes somebody more trustworthy than another? What makes somebody have more influence than another? Um, yeah, I got into the BBC. Yes, I, I look and sound good on camera. I can put a TV report together in a package. Um, in a situation where I've got children and a mortgage and no other source of income, and I'm presented with the truth, do I whistleblow or do I protect my family and my career? It's a difficult decision. A lot of people have to face it. Yeah, and I think the other aspect to that is is if they in that position, um, a lot of people's first uh, first sort of move might be to speak to their boss. Um, and if you were to take that information to the person above you, and they then say, "No, you can't do that because it will damage the reputation of our company," um, and if you do take it anywhere else, will ruin your career or. You know, even if it's not a threat as Threats kind of and to blackmail. the point. Yeah. Threats and blackmail, yeah. And I think people, uh, that's that's worth remembering, you know, for I, obviously a lot of people condemn a lot of people who worked at the BBC at the time. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people who worked there at the time who covered it up and ignored it, who deserved that condemnation. But there's also others, I think, who perhaps would have liked to have got the story out and couldn't for whatever reason. I also think that uh, then compared to now would be a lot easier to expose that because you've got social media, you could do it anonymously um, without, you know, you, without anyone knowing that it's you, you could, you could <clears throat> leak. But you can't, in a way, you can't do that. I mean, you know, I have information about um, people in power, yeah. big big stories if you just have one source without visual evidence you know you can't run the story you know it's just some voiceless person went on youtube and created their own channel and started saying i've got this information about this individual 
it's not enough to run a story. It's not deemed as credible. Um, you know, it has to be made up of a number of elements. You know, for, for myself as a professional journalist, somebody might contact me with an incredibly horrific story. They may even have evidence of what they're talking about, but without another second source confirming it, it's, it's not safe to run, basically. Um, yeah. So you've got, you've got evidence, okay? That makes you believe but you've also got the reputation of the organization it comes from as well, which gives it an edit an added layer of confirmation of truth. Um, and we're now in a situation where um, these organizations we have believed and entrusted for so long. And I, I would say, you know, it's a certain generational thing. My, I'm 43, my parents are 73. They've, we've all lived with the BBC and they've been a big part of our lives. They've been a talking point. They've been the place where we find out what's going on in the world with politics and, you know, it's been a relationship of trust that has been damaged. And uh, I don't think it's being addressed quickly enough by the BBC and other organisations. And I certainly fed stories which I thought would go somewhere to you know, Sunday Times, to ITN, and they haven't. And I think to myself, well, why haven't they investigated these stories? Because they're massive. Um, why haven't they pursued them? And there is an agenda a lot of the time you know, if they are commercial organisations, they have advertisers they've got to be aware of and they've got political leanings and they've got these relationship of those right at the top networking with each other, looking after each other. Um, and maybe the story just doesn't fit the agenda of the time. And, you know, the, the footage that came out of Prince Andrew at um, Epstein's house back in 2010 was only released by the Daily Mail in 2019. But they did release it. You know, how long were they sitting on that information for that video they had for nine years? But... You know, I was listening to an interview today with someone called Sonia Poltman. She said that the Daily Mail's anti-establishment. So there are different publications that are more anti-establishment um, that might be more willing to publish anti-establishment stories. Um, but you know, it's it's a it's not simply a case. So you know, I could I could get a terrestrial TV news channel together, which I could also broadcast on YouTube. So does that make me mainstream media, or does that make me social media? It's, uh, it's difficult, isn't it? It's, it's, what's the, what's it's the all about trust and influence. It's all about reputation, trust and influence. It's not about the platform on which it is published. It's about trust. Um, and it's about believing the individual that where that information comes from. Absolutely. I am um, very interested in the, the, you mentioned right at the start about uh, people using their phones. Uh, you know, to record things and stuff. And I know that's something that you're quite vocal about is, is uh, you know, teaching people to to use their phones for recording things. Um, so tell us a bit about that, uh, sort of that side of it and the stuff you do with that, because I know you do some courses as well, don't this, you? This for me is the hope, you know, this is the less dark side of where we are at, at the, with the media at the moment. So, I, you know, I could come here and talk about Jimmy Savile and I could talk about Edward Heath and the rot that's been sitting festering in our establishment for years and years and years, the paedophiles who've been protected and the multi-millionaires who've got away with all sorts of horrendous things. But why don't I talk instead about the power we have and how I can empower and educate people to do what I used to do with their mobile phones. So, you know, I can create a really top notch TV news package on my mobile phone. I can film for half an hour and get it edited and published within another half an hour, you know, in the same way, as I used to create a package for the TV news reports on six o'clock or half past six, you know, the regional programs. And, you know, you, you can do it. Anyone can do it. We can all do it now. 
and I really get excited when I'm doing training, whether that be corporate communications clients or citizen journalists or people like whistleblowers or victims and survivors of abuse who feel that their stories need to be um, communicated with the world. You know, corporate communications clients, they've got a particular agenda in their content. Uh, whistleblowers and victims of survivor abuse have got an agenda with their content. I'm not interested in the agenda, but I am interested in empowering and educating people to use their mobile phones to film and edit. So I use an editing app called KineMaster. I talk about how important subtitles are if you're posting on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, because 80% of all content's watched with the sound off. So you've got to think about that. And um, I talk about styles that are changing when it comes to video. So things like YouTube, people are watching it as a long form video. So it's much more likely to want to watch it in landscape. Not so essential that you add subtitles. But if you're capturing a new audience, so you want to engage a brand new audience on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, you have to think about grabbing their attention very quickly. So stylistically, video is really changing, especially if you look on Facebook Watch or Instagram that, you know, people call it clickbait, but unfortunately you do have to think about how to lure your audience in um, and then build that relationship up with great, good value content that's gonna enrich their lives in some way. So, you know, I talk about creating great content on a mobile, but also about once you've created that great content, how do you get fantastic organic share? And I would say boost uh, as well is very good value. If you boost content on Facebook, you can reach a large number of people. Um, I'll give the example of uh, the area where I live. I did a program called Penarth Social Media TV. I produced a 10 minute program, all of local news on this area, and it was all done on my mobile phone. And it looked exactly like anything you would have watched on the TV. Um, excuse me. I could present a link into a package. And I put that all together and I boosted it on Facebook geographically just for the people of Penarth. And for 80 pounds, I reached 22,000 people in Penarth which is fantastic. Um, I had some sponsorship and advertising attached to that, but for me, that's the feature of local media. And for 80 pounds to reach that many people, the paper, the newspaper here is called the Penarth Times. They only sell 2,800 copies. And I reached 22,000 people in a couple of days for 80 quid. You know, this is the power now. And I've been working with um, conservative politicians in Bath. I did some training with them and they understand now they can communicate directly with their constituents and you know I got a leaflet through the door for the Labour candidates you know traditional marketing they call that but that Labour candidate could go on Facebook talk like this and communicate to their constituents without doing the door knocking and the canvassing you know and and boost it to their constituents because you could do a geographical boost on Facebook and reach for 80 pounds you can reach like a whole town of 20,000 people it's incredible instead of all the costs of leafleting and distributing. So, you know, there's so much more to the media um, than just sort of attacking the BBC or, you know, the Guardian or the Times or the Mail. There's uh, the power that we have now to get these stories out. Yeah, so, social media has changed the game completely. Um, even for me, doing like I wanted to do a podcast for a very long time and I kind of put it off because of my own health and my mental health and stuff like that. And I start when I, the first, I think, probably 50 episodes I filmed on my phone with a, I think, 10 or 15 pound microphone. And it was only as I sort of... But is got, it social media and is it your phone? That's, that's the words that we're using, I think, need yeah. to change. Because it's not social media, it's for me, new media. It's, just, it's that yeah. we're communicating with each other. And it's, is it a phone? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how it's old a, you are, but the phone, the landline phone, 
it's so much more than a phone, isn't it? Yeah, it's a oh, recording God, yeah. device that unites the world and communicates things we don't want to hear, communicates things that we don't want to say, communicates things that will change society. And it's an exciting time to live in, but you've got to have the balls to be able to deal with it. You know, it's yeah. going to be a difficult time for us all when it comes to politics, when it comes to society. We are going through massive, massive changes. But we, um, if we don't survive it, we will survive it. The human race will cease to exist. That's my belief. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so just before we uh, finish off, I, I've got to uh, read these questions which people sent in because uh, there's some very interesting ones, actually. Um, so let's have a quick start. So first one, straight in there. Um, they say, uh, on the BBC coverage of 9-11 on the day, they announced the collapse of World Trade Center 7 before it actually collapsed. Uh, as far as I know, they never explained this. Is there a legitimate reason how this could be possible? I, um, I remember when I started to look at some of the 9-11 documentaries a couple of years ago, the architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, so many people coming forward saying, how could that building seven just collapse like that? And you also had the reporter saying it was gonna collapse. You know, I, I could guess maybe that a press release was sent, a communication was sent from um, a government, the government organisations who were releasing the information and they sent it too early and they knew it was going to come down. I really, really don't feel comfortable answering that question. I have yeah. no idea. I honestly yeah. have no idea. I wasn't working in the, the newsroom on that day, so I can't say. And I wasn't there when that building fell. Either. You know, that's, that's as good a response I can get to that question, I'm afraid. Yeah, I think it's fair enough. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a difficult one. I think, I think what they're asking is, is there, is there like a reason why, uh, it, no. you know, that could have happened without it being what everyone thinks, basically. Um, I don't know. This, I don't know. Make, have you, make up your own mind on that one. Make up your yeah. own mind. Um, uh, uh, oh, here's an interesting one. Uh, how long do you think it will be before YouTube starts to censor people like yourself or others who are trying to do real, real journalism? I think speculation and predicting the future. I think if the public um, actually start taking action following the information that they're getting from YouTube, then they become the new mainstream media. You know, we have to treat YouTube as the mainstream media in a way, but there's a lot of crap on oh, YouTube. Yeah. Um, I think what it comes down to, because we're getting information everywhere and evidence, you know, we have to, like I said, look at the evidence and trust the source, but it comes down to what we believe in our hearts. So I don't know if YouTube is going to start censoring you or me or James English or Sean Atwood or um, I know there's a lot of stuff they have taken off. Um, and I actually agree with a lot of the stuff they have taken off, to be honest. So, well, let's see what happens. What, what it comes down to at the end of the day is they're an organization that needs to make money. So if people feel that they are not reflecting a truth, and they stop watching, they'll lose money. So another platform would come along that become more successful. They have to make money. So it all seems to be about money and advertising. So they won't, they won't ditch these channels if these channels are performing well. No, indeed. Um, who do you recommend as a trustworthy journalist to follow? Don't ask me that. Don't ask me that. <laughs> the only trustworthy journalist that you can follow is you. That is a good answer. 
absolutely good answer. There are a few. I would say, so Mark Watts was at uh, the Independent Inquiry to Child Sexual Abuse Every Day, and he took child abuse victims out for lunch, you know, out of his own pocket. And um, any journalist with empathy who does that kind of thing is somebody that uh, impresses me. Um, but then, you know, 10 years down the line, I could hear something about him that I didn't know. I don't know him intimately. This is the yeah. problem. No, no one knows me intimately. You know, you don't know where I live. You don't know how I decided to spend my money, who I hang out with. I could have great charisma on screen, but I could be a complete nutter, um, psychopath, narcissist, couldn't I? You know, yeah. who do you trust? Trust yourself. Absolutely. Um, and this one's an interesting question because you, uh, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, they say, why wasn't, uh, why wasn't the videos that Tommy Robinson's, Tommy Robinson's team took of John Sweeney's, John, geez, can't read, John Sweeney's, uh, start again. Why wasn't the videos that Tommy Robinson's team took of John Sweeney a bigger story? It seems like uh, if this person says, if my friend hadn't showed it to me, I wouldn't have known about it. Um, and he says, really good point. No, that's is a it really just because good Tommy, Tommy Robinson's controversial? Really, and I, I, I don't never swear, okay, but the BBC yeah. totally fucked up big time. When that footage was released, um, Tommy Robinson did that big, um, you know, he, he got together a stage and released that documentary and the footage of John Sweeney. The BBC just pretended it hadn't happened. They did get rid of John Sweeney. He's left now. So they knew well aware what was going on. Yeah. They were insulting the intelligence of the British people. It, were, it was spread on social media. And then literally, as soon as that was released, the YouTube and everyone got rid of Tommy Robinson's channel. So they, they removed him from social media. Now I must say, I am not a Tommy Robinson supporter. I'm not one of them alt-right. I am, um, but I'm aware of the journalistic practices that have been uh, that have been exposed following that footage of John Sweeney in um, Pano Drama. Um, and you're right, they should have addressed it very, very quickly and said, you know, this is totally unacceptable. We had no idea this practice was going on in BBC Panorama. We're going to um, remove John Sweeney and we're going to actually completely remove the, the team behind what happened there. They didn't do it and they made a huge mistake in doing that because that's eroded their trust, the trust that public have in them even more. And in some ways it's similar to the Jimmy Savile thing in that they didn't get rid of perhaps the people... Get rid of the time the when it happens, when you know. Listen, we all deal. When you're working in an organisation, you can't control. You know, I could take on a load of journalists and think that they're fantastic. But if one of them does something unethical or seriously wrong, I, you know, I grab it and I expose it. I become transparent and I apologise, okay? It's not the act that's gone wrong and the mistake. It's how they deal with it following the, it happening. And uh, last uh, last couple, so oh, that's going to be a long question. I'm not sure about that one. Um, sorry. Uh, so, uh, so this one says, are you familiar with uh, Rich D. Hall's work? Uh, what's your opinion of it, if you have been? Um, I have watched some of it, um, but... I, it's been a while, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give a comment on that. Okay, I am um, I for, for me personally, I watched uh, a very very long like eight hour documentary he did on uh, Madeleine McCann, which I found very interesting. I've seen where he's he's got somebody to go through the conversations of the McCanns and what do they call it? Uh, the, uh, uh, it's like not body language, just the like where they analyze the, 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 the words they speak yeah. and stuff. 
it's 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 a it's a it's a piece of evidence but it's not the whole picture so um i don't think it's enough i don't think that evidence is enough is strong enough to say that the parents were guilty no no i agree um and then the final question is why can't we trust the mainstream media <laughs> well we've covered that one yeah so i thought i was gonna say i think we've just covered that one <laughs> it's not fun listen there's a couple of pe- messages i have to get across this is not entertainment and people watch this as entertainment we have to take action we need to do something if you watch something share tell your friends tell your family tell your youngsters you know don't just sit and watch this stuff and think oh god isn't this awful talk about it and work you know do something start your own channels you know, you can bring about, so I trained about 20 people last year, thanks to the funding from a book called Meat Rat Boy, which I helped to write with a guy called Michael Tarragon. The, the profits from that book, we have spent helping people get their message out and it's working and they're being invited to, Michael Tarragon was invited to the GMB Union Conference. Um, another woman called Jan Cruikshank, her story is about to go national um, in Scotland. So it's not a case of social media is this over here and then and mainstream media is over here. They are integrating and social media is bringing about change. Please don't be disheartened. A very small story, you know, near to where I live, um, a dove, dove coat had been sealed up because the doves were causing a lot of mess and hygiene issues. So the pub and the restaurant closed the dove coat and the birds couldn't get in. And it caused such a hoo-ha on social media that it went on BBC Wales, then it was in the Daily Mail. And now... Um, the pub, within a day, the pub had reopened this dovecote so the doves could go back in. So don't think your conversations in real life and your conversations on social media don't matter, okay? It's not them and us. The media is the media. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Uh, so, Anna, tell the people where they can follow you and your work. So I... Um, you can follow me on Facebook. Uh, my page is called Brees Media, B-R-E-E-S. I'm also on Twitter. I've got a very large following on Twitter, mm. and that is at Brees Anna, B-R-E-E-S, Anna. I also have a YouTube channel. Again, my name, there aren't many of us, Anna Brees. Uh, B is my surname that's unusual, B-R-E-E-S. So I would, uh, it'd be great if you could follow me on there. What I would say is I'm struggling to get back to the number of messages that I'm getting and it's stopping me from being productive. So I want to do more content and I want to do more interviews and I want to go out for funding. So I apologize if people are messaging me and I'm not getting back to them. And, and I'm really, really about empowering and educating. So, you know, I've got an online course on Vimeo, which is only 15 quid. And if people buy that or my book, which is called making the news, I have then more free time to, do this training and, and to train the people who don't have the money as well it's always people that have got money isn't it usually that, that get the opportunity to learn these skills so it's great if i can do it and help people who don't necessarily have the funds so if you do message me or email me um i apologize if i don't get back to you as quickly as i would like you know i've got to look at maybe getting some funding to help people to answer my messages for me but i don't like that really going on and you know, it's weird, someone sends you a lovely message and a lot of people are victims of abuse or injustice and they send me a message and I don't answer it. And that really breaks my heart. But the problem is I get so many of them. I'm literally spending all my time replying to messages and not doing this kind of getting this strategy together, direction and funding investment to work towards a future that, um, that we all need and want, a future where the, the world is a better place where the media is a better place, 
and we're all talking about really fun things and having a laugh and just enjoying uh, enjoying the world and enjoying our children absolutely thank you very much for joining me anna um i really appreciate your time and effort and i keep doing everything that you're doing uh, guys you can follow me on twitter at acecast underscore nation uh, please subscribe to the youtube channel which is youtube slash ace podcast nation because uh, that's really the best way to support the channel and uh, all the shows we do and you'll find all the audio versions of every show at uh, apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify stitcher all those lovely podcast apps and i thank you again for joining me and uh, guys we'll see you next time Podcast Network.